Chapter 6, Part 1 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 6, Part 1 The Theology of the Church and Its Opponents. 1. The human mind naturally attempts to connect and systematize the truths imparted to it. It is tolerant of mere isolated fragments of truth, and this systematizing faculty, working upon the truths revealed in Christ, produced in the course of ages the fabric of Christian theology. But in the early years of the Church it was perceived that there must be some limitation of the truths which could be considered Christian, Neither the pretended revelations and traditions of the Gnostics, for instance, nor the apocryphal books of some other sects, could be admitted to be sources of Christian doctrine. What then are the genuine sources of Christian truth? A. In the first place, Holy Scripture. The scriptures of the Old Testament were received from the first in all the churches as authoritative declarations of the divine will. But here the question arose what was to be understood under the name Holy Scripture? The Hebrew canon was indeed defined, but several later works of Palestinian and Egyptian Jews, though never received by the Hebrew doctors as equal with the ancient sacred books, were thought by many to possess some degree of authority. And to the great mass of Christians, the books of the ancient Jewish canon and the recent editions were known alike in the Greek language. It was not easy to distinguish the canonical from the apocryphal books, to use the terms by which they came to be designated in later times, when all came before them in the same form and with no outward marks of distinction. And this confusion was propagated in the West by the old Latin version, which was made from the Greek. The prevalence of this uncertainty induced Melito of Sardis to inquire in the East for the true canon of the ancient books. The list of the books of the Old Testament which he gives exactly coincides with that of the English Church, except in the exclusion of the book of Esther. Origen gives in the main the same catalogue, including Esther, and perhaps also Baruch, Although, however, men whose attention had been specially directed to the subject distinguished between the ancient Hebrew books and the later editions, many early writers quote apocryphal books as of authority. In the case of the New Testament, we have to do with the formation of a canon, not with the recognition of one already formed. While the teaching of the apostles and of others who had seen the Lord was still fresh in the minds of the brethren, the need of an authentic written standard of the facts and doctrines of the gospel was scarcely felt. The word was a message or proclamation. It was heard, received, handed down. But as this word died away, a variety of written documents claimed to supply its place. It is clear, however, that, from the earliest date at which we could expect to find evidence of such a fact, the four Gospels which we recognize occupied a place apart. The picture of Christ which we find in the earliest Christian writers is the picture which we find in the Gospels, and not elsewhere. Both in orthodox and heretical writers there is a constancy of reference to the now-received Gospels, such as cannot be produced in favor of any other writings whatever. Irenaeus, connected by only one intervening link with St. John, distinctly recognizes four Gospels, undoubtedly are four, and no more as the authentic pillars of the Church. The apostolical epistles from the first claim to be something more than occasional writings, and as early as the time when the second epistle of St. Peter was written, the epistles of St. Paul were clearly regarded as scripture. Basilides the Gnostic, about the year 125, quotes as scripture the epistle to the Romans and the first to the Corinthians. Clement of Alexandria recognizes the apostle, 
the collection of apostolic writings, as correlative to the gospel. Tertullian speaks expressly of the New Testament as consisting of the Gospels and the Apostle. The earliest testimonies to the existence of the New Testament as a whole are the catalogue contained in the famous Muratorian fragment, written about A.D. 170, a Western document, and the Syriac version of the New Testament, called Peshito, made about the same period, which to a great extent agrees with it. In the third century, testimony is abundant to the general reception of Scripture of nearly all the books of the New Testament which we at present acknowledge. Certain books, the Epistle to the Hebrews, of Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John, James, and the Apocalypse, were not received as canonical with the same absolute unanimity as the rest. Of these it may be said that by the end of the third century, the Apocalypse was universally received, with the single exception of Dionysius of Alexandria by all the writers of the period, and the Epistle to the Hebrews by the churches of Alexandria, Asia, and Syria, but not by those of Africa and Rome. The Epistles of St. James and St. Jude were little used, and the second Epistle of St. Peter was barely known. And the reverence with which the books of the New Testament were received was due to the belief that their writers had the special guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures are divine writings, oracles of God, writings of the Lord. The prophets spoke as they were moved by a spirit given by God, yet in such a way that the spirits of the prophets were subject to the prophets, not in the blind furor or ecstasy of a pagan soothsayer. The recognition of the guidance of the spirit granted to the sacred writers did not blind the early fathers to the differences of their gifts. Both Irenaeus and Origen made excellent remarks on the peculiarities of the style of St. Paul, and Tertullian speaks of him in the early days of his discipleship as still raw in grace as if capable of after-development. It was an object of great importance with the early defenders of the faith to shew the essential harmony of the Old Testament with the New, a harmony which Marcion and some others denied. It is in view of such an opinion that Irenaeus lays down that it is the same householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Both the Old Testament and the New were brought forth by one and the same word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The two testaments are the two pillars upon which rests the mighty structure of the church. The method of the ancient interpretation of Scripture is, for the most part, neither historical nor philological. It is the effort of pious and believing minds to find in the books for which they felt so much reverence the greatest amount of edification for their souls. b. But the appeal to the Scriptures against heresy was not in all cases conclusive. Many of the early Christians knew little of them. They had believed without paper and ink and it was difficult for the orthodox teachers to refute the allegorical interpretations by means of which many heretics thrust their own opinions into scripture, for they themselves also practiced the same method. Heretics frequently claimed to possess the only key to its meaning. The early teachers did in fact appeal to the doctrine of the apostles, as maintained in the churches which they had founded. They appealed to the actually existing faith in the churches of such cities as Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, Alexandria, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Rome. Irenaeus claimed the authority of his old friend and master. Polycarp had seen an apostle, Valentinus had not. He claimed the authority of the church of Ephesus, founded by St. Paul, instructed by St. John, and generally appealed to the store of faith left by the apostles in the churches. In precisely the same strain, Tertullian affirms, that what the apostles taught is to be discovered through the churches which they founded, in which they preached, to which they wrote that doctrine is to be held true which agrees with that of the apostolic churches, the sources and springs of faith. 
and it was natural and indeed necessary that the essence of the apostolic teaching, as it was found in the memories of the churches and in the writings of the New Testament, should be summed up in a brief and easily grasped shape for the use of the faithful. Such a rule of faith, rule of the church, rule of truth, or by whatever name it may be called, does in fact soon make its appearance. No such rule, as far as we know, was drawn up by any apostle, or by the apostles collectively. Yet a document which set forth the primitive doctrine naturally claimed the authority of Christ and the apostles. It was given by teachers in a briefer or more extended form, as circumstances required, so that it has come down to us in several shapes, in which we may generally trace the special errors against which they are directed. Traces of such a rule are found in Ignatius and in Justin Martyr. But it is in Irenaeus first that we find a tolerably complete summary of the faith which the Church, dispersed throughout the world, had received from the apostles and their disciples, the belief in one God, the Father all-sovereign, who made heaven and earth, in one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets proclaimed the life and death, the resurrection and ascension of our beloved Lord, and his coming again in the glory of the Father, to raise up all flesh of all mankind, and to do just judgment upon all. The short rule given by Tertullian coincides in substance with that of Irenaeus, with the addition that the Virgin Mary and Pontius Pilate are mentioned by name. In origin, the statement of the rule is mingled with paraphrastic comment, referring to opinions of the writer's own time, but it is easy to see that the substance of the faith taught in Alexandria was identical with that of Gaul and of Africa. The same may be said of the summary of apostolic teaching given in the Apostolical Constitutions, where it is remarkable that the twelve apostles, with St. James the Lord's brother and St. Paul, are said to have drawn up this Catholic teaching for the use of those to whom the oversight of the Church had been entrusted. In these formularies we have not mere individual utterances, but the expression of what the Church at large felt to be the essence of its faith. These cardinal truths remain fixed and firm, while matters of conduct and organization admit of change from time to time under the influence of the grace of God. But custom and tradition are by no means to be followed contrary to the words of Christ. Side by side with the conception of Catholicity was developed that of heresy. Those who did not accept in its fullness the apostolic doctrine embodied in the rule of faith were heretics. Heretics, says Irenaeus, offer strange fire, doctrines, that is, strange to the church. They are a rebellious minority. It is of the essence of heresy that it claims to be Christian, that it disguises false doctrine under Christian terms, that it offers, as Ignatius says, a deadly poison mixed with honey wine, its wolves pass for sheep, its wild beasts for men. It springs from unbridled self-assertion. It is a later birth, while Catholic doctrine is from the beginning, and therefore true. The duty of Christians is to avoid heretics, but to pray for them, that they may be brought to repentance. The Church was continually arming itself against heresy, and to some extent modified its own attitude. Akin to the rule of faith, though distinct from it in origin, is the baptismal confession. From the earliest times a profession of faith was required of him who would be baptized. When the Lord charged his apostles to admit men to discipleship by baptism into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, it is clear that he required faith in the Holy Trinity as a condition. A man must confess the good confession in order to receive baptism. But in the course of a few generations it came to pass that the candidate was required to answer somewhat more than the Lord laid down in the gospel. Something was added of the church, perhaps also the resurrection of the flesh. End of chapter 6, part 1